Hear now the word of God. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, would you help us tonight in our feebleness, in our tiredness of the day? We may be tempted to drift off or not to really hear your word, but would you protect us from that this evening? Would you give us energy? Would you give us attention? Would you give us an apprehension that you have something precious to tell us from your scriptures tonight? Make us eager to hear and to believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was about 12 years old, I had a hobby. Now, it's not a hobby that I have anymore, and I kind of look back on it kind of with a bit of a smirk, but my hobby back when I was 12 years old was collecting baseball cards. And I used to have this big three-ring binder it was like this big, you know, maybe like six inches thick, just really good-sized binder. And I had the pages highly organized. And I, I consider myself a very organized person, and I wonder if you might trace it back to my, my baseball card collection because I would organize them by team. And I did like to trade baseball cards with my friends. I remember I had a Bo Jackson card when he played for the Royals, and all my friends wanted it. I think somebody tricked me and ended up getting my Bo Jackson Royals card. And uh, I don't even know if people care about Bo Jackson anymore. Um, and one, of, one, of, one day we were looking through my cards, and every now and then we would buy this uh, – I don't even remember what, the, what the, the, the booklet was called, but every few months they would release a uh, – a list of the cards and what the value of the cards were. And, and I remember we looked up one of my cards and it was my George Brett rookie card from when he was playing for the Royals. You see, up north, that's what we like. We like the Royals because they were Kansas City. And I remember it was worth $15, which in kid money is all the money. Uh, $15, it, it can buy you anything. And this was in 1990s money, so I could have swam in it. There was so much of it. Um, but to me, it was the costliest thing I had in my life. And all my friends were like, I want it. I want it. I want it. And I didn't end up trading it away. I said, I'm keeping this incredibly valuable baseball card. None of you guys can have it. And I just sat on that card. And then 
years later, I was going off to college. I said, I have to do something with this three-ring binder, and I think I gave it away to somebody. Um, <laughs> but there was a season there where that George Brett rookie card was my costliest thing in my life. And I have a feeling, uh, as costly as that card felt to me, um, you can think of more costly things in your life, more costly things than just a George Brett rookie baseball card. What is the costliest thing in your life? I, I suspect that if you are a parent, then you're, I already know your answer. You're, you would probably say your children. Um, I preached on anxiety a few weeks ago. You probably remember. And I remember after the service, Opie came up to me and he says, you don't know anxiety until your children start driving. And I think that's probably true. I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. We're coming up on it already, believe it or not. But, but why is that? Why would that be the thing that causes you such anxiety as a parent? It's because there's nothing in our lives that we value more than our children, I think. And last week, we started to see that there are two things in Hannah's life that are on a collision course. Uh, On the one hand, there is this vow that she has made to God. God, if you will give me this child, I will dedicate him to you all the days of his life. There's that vow. And it's on a collision course with with something else in her life. And that other reality is this. God is going to do it. He is actually going to give her the desire of her heart here in this instance. And those things are on a collision course. They're going to meet at which point Hannah has to do something. And in that moment, she's going to be called to put her money where her mouth is. She's going to be called on to actually give this child up. And as we witness the life of Hannah this evening, I want us to consider her vow because she made the vow in the last chapter. She said, if you will give, me, give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And so it's a vow that she made. Potentially, you might interpret it as being a desperate moment. And it's a vow that she made in a moment of dramatic need and helplessness. And yet it's also a vow that she keeps. And even though it's so costly for her to do it. And so tonight our outline is, is really simple. The vow remembered and the vow kept. The vow remembered and the vow kept. Uh, first in the passage we have the vow remembered. When our passage begins, of course, baby Samuel has already been born. And Elkanah is taking all of his house for the yearly sacrifice, almost certainly the Day of Atonement. But we see a bit of a disagreement happening in this household. Hannah says, I'm going to go. But she says that she doesn't want to go when when baby Samuel is is not weaned because she remembers the vow that she's made. She says, I'm not I'm not delaying. I'm not putting this off. It's not like I'm trying to find a loophole and not bring my son to the Lord. She's not delaying. She says that she will bring him. But she says so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. In other words, she doesn't want to take him and then bring him back. And take him and bring him back, back and forth, so that, yeah, he's dedicated to the Lord, but he still lives with his mommy. That's not what she wants. She says, no, if I do this, I'm going to do it. Now, let's not be in too big of a hurry to see what comes next, though, because let's pause a moment and look at the picture that forms of this house that Samuel comes from. Um, 
you start to see things like this is an honorable household. This is, an obliga- this is a house where obligations to God are remembered. Um, we see that in the first verse of our passage, uh, the people were obligated to participate in the pilgrimage festivals uh, to Jerusalem, or actually to Shiloh, sorry. And that's what Elkanah does. So, so he makes these voluntary vows, and he keeps his voluntary vows. So notice this about Elkanah. He is the head of a godly, virtuous home. Yes, he has marriage problems because of the fact that he has more than one wife. But if you look at this household, this household is what you might call a church-going home. This is a family of committed worshipers. It's a home where Elkanah is the spiritual head, and yet there is also unity in the house. Uh, they're united in their commitment to God and in their commitment to worship. And, and I, I noticed this too with Elkanah. Notice how he doesn't domineer his wife. Um, he says, we're going. She says, not yet. She gives an alternative idea about a better way to do this. And she's allowed to have input. You know, he doesn't say, look, I'm the head of this household. Get on your donkey. Bring the baby. We're going, you know. Um, he listens to his wife. He, he listens to his wife's opinion. He, he cares what she thinks about the situation. Um, I can't tell you how many bad ideas in my life have been avoided because I listened to my wife. Um, and, and the men in the room could probably say the same. You have had things that you thought this will be a great idea. And your wife has told you, what are you thinking? You're crazy. And uh, time and time again, I have sought out the opinion of my wife. Besides praying, the most important thing I do when I'm making a decision is ask my wife, what do you think? And I think most of the men in this room would probably agree. Listening to your wife has saved you a large amount of trouble and a large amount of heartache. At least I hope you could say that. Uh, But this is a home where God is worshipped and it's a home where God is honored and it's a home where his wife is honored. Uh, And it's a reminder to parents of just how important it is that we lead our families well, especially that we not just be people who talk about church, but who actually live it out for our children to see. Elkanah acts out on the things that he believes. He takes them to actual worship. He actually takes them to participate in the festivals. And so because Elkanah's household is a a godly household, um, Hannah has this profound sense that this vow is important. It's a vow that that shouldn't be broken. It's honoring this vow is not optional. And so notice that obedience starts in the heart. Because this is a home that cultivates honesty, that cultivates godliness and honoring God, that's where this impulse within Hannah comes from. Sometimes vows are made in haste. You could probably think of times in human history where people make a vow and the vow isn't sinful. It's not something that you couldn't make, but at the same time, it is still a a hasty vow that maybe could have used done done with a little bit more forethought. Um, I'll give you one of the most famous examples. If you don't already know it, at least you can be refreshed in it. Um, Roland Baton in his biography of Martin Luther begins the book like this. This is how the book opens. On a sultry day in July of the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Stotternheim. He was a young man, short but sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly there was a shower... Then a crashing storm. 
A bolt of lightning rived the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried in terror, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Luther's father was furious with the vow, of course, because Martin Luther's father, Hans, had grand designs for his son. His son was supposed to become a wealthy lawyer. He was supposed to bring Hans security in his old age. And instead, Hans Luther became bitter towards his son and bitter towards God because of this vow that had been made. And, and, and to my mind, at least, Hans Luther represents Hannah if Hannah had turned bitter and ungrateful in her giving. Hans would have preferred Luther forget his vow and just pretend that he had never made it. How tempting it is to forget God, though, isn't it? How tempting it is to forget our promises, to forget what we owe him, and just to live for ourselves and just simply to forget our obligation to the Lord and forget everything that he's given to us. But notice this. That temptation may be real for Hannah. It may even occur to Hannah, and yet she doesn't do that. Instead, she remembers her vow. And when she remembers her vow, of course, that leads exactly to the next point, which is keeping the vow. The vow kept, the vow remembered. In verse 24, it tells us, it says, When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. You know, it really is, it's, it's one thing to make a vow. It's a one thing to make a vow. It's another thing to, to remember your vow. But the toughest thing in the world sometimes is actually keeping the vow. Actually putting it into practice and actually doing this thing that sounded like such a good idea when you first said it. And, you know, the thing about vows is they're made for the moment when we don't want to keep them anymore. The point of a vow is that we, 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 we agree to do something that later on we may want to take back. That's the point of the vow. The point of the vow is to bind us in this moment. The point of the vow is for us to have this thing that we hold fast to whether we want to or not. And there are times when we don't want to. One of my favorite war movies, I don't know if you have any favorite war movies, but one of my favorite war movies, no, my favorite war movie, not one of, my favorite war movie is a movie called The Thin Red Line. And it is a World War II movie that takes place in the Pacific Campaign. And it specifically follows when the soldiers are taking the island of Guadalcanal. And they're pushing inland and they're trying to take this airstrip that's in the middle of the island that the Japanese are holding. And at one point in the film, there's a soldier, and he has a grenade. And he, he goes to grab the grenade, and instead of grabbing the grenade, he grabs the pin, and he pulls the pin. And in that moment, he has this decision that he has to make, and so he throws himself against the hillside, and the grenade, of course, detonates. And he saves all of his comrades, all of his, all of his friends in that moment, and he dies there. And as he's dying, he, he takes a letter out of his jacket, and he presses it into the hand of one of the nearest men and he looks him in the eye and he says you give this letter to my wife and you tell her i die like a man and the guy says okay i'll do it i'll do it i'll find her i'll help you okay and then the guy dies right in front of him and and then the guy says wow how are you going to find his wife one of the guys says to him and the guy with the letter says oh i'm not going to find her you find her and then the guy who's standing there talking to him says, but you promised him that you would find his wife and give this letter to her and that you would say that. And the guy says, you'll say anything to him when they're like that. 
you give her the letter. And he throws it on the ground and he walks away. And it's a bleak moment. It's this picture of real cowardice. Not only is this man afraid in battle, but he's afraid to even face this woman's widow or this man's widow and tell her what what she's really like. He can't keep his vow. His word is no good. And it is so tempting. It is so tempting to make promises like that and then pull back on them. And truth be told, I think we need to appreciate this about Hannah. Not that it would have been right, but Hannah could have done the same thing. She could have said, no, no, I, I, I did say that. I did say that I, I would dedicate my son to God. But, you know, you, you say anything to God when you're in desperation. I didn't really mean it. Maybe Hannah even had it cross her mind for even a moment to do exactly that. And you know what? She doesn't do that. Hannah keeps her word. She keeps her promise. And when she does this, she shows us how to give. She models giving for us as Christians. And by the way, this is about more than financial giving. Sometimes when we, when we talk about giving in the church, it's sort of veiled, like we need to give more money. Um, but this is about more than money. Like she doesn't give money here. She gives her, her very child. When Christians give, they give in at least three ways. They give in terms of their time. They give in terms of their talent. And they give in terms of their treasure as well. So think about this. They, Christians give of their time, and we're called upon as Christians to give of our time. One of the things that always amazes me is when I see, when I show up here on a Sunday morning and the lawn is, is newly mowed, and you know someone gave up their Saturday to do that, or someone or multiple people, they gave up their time to do that. And here's the reality. The value of a thing is determined in part by its scarcity. How hard is it to come by? And there is nothing in our lives that is more scarce than time. Time is always running out. It's always eroding away. No matter what we do, we can't create more of it. Time is the most valuable thing we have. It is maximally scarce and it can't be replaced. And so when I see people at the church serving, I'm really encouraged that that God's people would give the most valuable thing that they have, that they would give their time. But another way that Christians give is by their talents. Um, If you have some gifting and and you share it, that is giving. Um, If you have a voice to sing and and you join the choir, for example, you're using a God-given talent that God has given you. And if you're teaching, you're using the talent that God has given you. Um, um, If you know your way around plants and you help with the flowers or or the trees or the grass on the property, you're giving back a talent that God has given to you. So... If you're helping with children in Sunday school, you're using that talent that God has given you. So, so that's another way that Christians can and, and should give. But Christians also give, of course, financially by giving their treasure. Um, the Bible is very clear. Christians should be giving people. We should be people who keep our purse strings loose. And the reason, of course, is because it's all a gift. Everything's just been given to us. And so we can give what's been given to us. All we're doing is returning it. And so whichever way you're giving in the moment, whether it's from your time or your talent or your treasure, look how Hannah gives because I think it's going to help us to be better givers too. Look at this. First, her giving is responsive. So she gives what she has gotten. She recognizes where she got what she is giving from. Look what she says in verse 27, she's talking to Eli, 
And she says, oh, my Lord, as you live, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. So you hear the therefore. And and I hope that you're starting to learn whenever you see the therefore, there's an argument being made. She's making the argument about why she's giving the child. She says, I have lent him to the Lord because the Lord gave him to me. The Lord granted my petition. Therefore, I'm giving him. It's reflexive. God has done this. So I'm doing this. The foundation and reason for her giving is that God has given first. She was not owed this child. She didn't have this child. There was no scenario where she could twist God's arm enough to give her this child. And she knows that God gave this child absolutely freely to her in her helplessness and in her depth of need. So she knows this child is really the Lord's anyway. All she is doing here is responsive. She is doing back to God what he did first to her. So her giving is responsive. And our giving should be responsive as well. We give to God because he's given to us. Second, her her giving took preparation. Um, Think about this. At the beginning, Hannah is having that conversation. And and in essence, she's saying, "I'm, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to go to the tabernacle until I'm ready to give him up. So even as she's she's talking to Elkanah, she's planning to let him go. She's, she's making the plan. She's planning to give him up. But she says, I'm not going to give him up until I'm really ready to do it. So she puts thought and planning into how she gives to God. Now listen to this. This is William Blakey. He's talking about Hannah here. He says, had she gone before her son was weaned, she must have taken him with her and brought him away with her. And that would have broken the solemnity of the transaction When at last she should take him for good and all, the very first time that she should present herself at the holy place where God had heard her prayer and her vow would be the time when she should fulfill her vow. So he's sort of sharing some of that thought process and why must it be the first time she goes that she just needs to leave him? You know, she almost needs to to sort of tear it off and just be done with it. And Hannah does it this way because she's thoughtful, because she's planned, because she's considerate. She's thought about how she's going to give. I don't know how thoughtful you are about how you give God the things that you give, whether it's time, whether it's your talent, whether it's your treasurer. Um, When I was a teenager and I first started earning money, the way I gave was totally arbitrary. I, I put no thought whatsoever into how I was going to give and so the way I first earned money, my very first job was mowing lawns. And so I would just go and mow somebody's lawn and I'd get $10. Remember, $10 is a lot in the 90s. And I would mow a lawn and I'd get $10. And I'd maybe mow a couple lawns and I'd have $20 in my hands. And then I would go to church and I would sit through the service and then we would get to the part where we were supposed to give. And I wasn't a Christian, but I also knew I was supposed to give. And so the the plate came around, and I would just reach in and grab the amount I felt like at the moment. I never felt like giving everything I had. It was always, you know, a a small number, you know, a dollar or two. And, And for years when I would give, that's what I would do. I would not put any thought into how I was giving. And 
and not coincidentally, I didn't give very much because if you, if you wait for yourself to feel like giving, you oftentimes won't give. And then as I got older, I learned that my heart is usually spontaneously uh, cheap when the moment comes. And uh, I usually was not in the mood to empty my wallet. But the lesson that I had to learn, and I think the lesson Hannah gives us here, is that giving takes planning. Um, so what, what we do is we, we write our family budget up for the month and, and we write out the check for what we're going to give each month in advance. We don't wait to be here and, and wait for the moment to come, um, but we plan it and, and we write it into our family budget. And, and however you plan, however you give, uh, again, this is finances, but you can think of the other ways that you give as well. Um, Above all else, never deceive yourself into thinking that all your giving should be spontaneous. Um, Paul does say that, that in 1 Corinthians, he says that it shouldn't be spontaneous. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So, so Paul is actually giving a, a vision of giving here that's very planned out, very thoughtful. Um, that does not mean that, that all of our planning must be, be planned ahead of time. That doesn't mean that you don't help someone in need. It doesn't mean that you don't spontaneously give more. There's room for Christians spontaneously giving in the Christian life, but we should not expect that to be the sum total of how we give. Hannah plans her giving. She sets this example for us here, and so we should follow her example. This is how Hannah keeps the vow that she's made. As we close, though, I want you to think about one more aspect of Hannah's giving. And the last thing that we see is that her giving is not just planned out, and it's not just responsive, but her giving is generous. She made this vow. And she doesn't make this vow so that she can manipulate God. She doesn't make this vow so that she can rub it in her rival's face, as much as that might have felt good. Um, she makes the vow and keeps the vow out of a belief in the power of God. And she also does it to show God that this child will not be an idol for her. So you see what she does? She gives up her son, her very own son, for the good of Israel. Do you see that here? Her son is a costly sacrifice for the sake of keeping a vow. Now, it's easy to keep our eyes on little Samuel and Hannah here, but I want us to actually draw our eyes up a little higher than just Hannah and Samuel as we close, because our passage tonight is like a, blue, a blueprint for a greater promise. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in the New Testament, we see that Jesus understands the reason why he was born, why he came into the world, and he understands it in terms of an eternal vow between the Son and the Father. So just listen to these three verses from John 6, 38 through 40. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So along with this, 
where you hear him talking about those the Father has given to me, I want you to think about John 17, 6, where Jesus is praying in the garden. He's talking to the Father, and this is what he says. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And so the picture, as you piece this idea of God giving uh, uh, giving people to his son, the picture starts to form is this. Before the world was made, the father made a covenant with the son. And the covenant was this, that the father would send the son to lay his life down for specific people who were given to the son. And so the eternal agreement between the father and son is this. The son would be born and live and die to save people. He would take their sins upon himself and his people would take his righteousness upon them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, so notice this. The father gives up his son. His very own son for the sake of a covenant, for the sake of a vow, for the sake of a people. So when you look at the life and the death of the son, you aren't just seeing a historical fact. You are seeing the father giving the costliest thing that he has for the sake of a promise. Hannah gave up her own son for Israel for the sake of a promise. And the father gave up his own son for Israel for the sake of a promise. You see this? Hannah's vow is a faint reflection of God's own vow to give his son up for our sake. And so God is calling Hannah to be like him. Here's what this really comes down to. Christian, if you often think of God as angry, if you find yourself easily believing that he is displeased with you and he is angry with you, and if you feel his divine frown over your life, let me just say he sent his very own son. Not because he's angry with you, but because in Christ Jesus, he loves you. He is a promise-keeping God. He is a vow-keeping God. And he has done everything that it takes to keep the promise made, even at the cost of his very own son. Let's pray. Father, there really is nothing left but for us to look at your own costly giving and to marvel, to see the preciousness of your own son, your perfect son, your unique son, your only begotten son, the son you delighted in from all eternity, the son who is precious in your sight, and you gave him up for us all. How will you not then with him freely give us all things? Hannah gave a gift that you first gave to her, and you've given us all that we need for life and godliness in your son. Would you make us, O God, people who will freely part with our time and our talent and our treasure? Will you help us not only to echo Hannah and how we give, but help us to echo you? Help us to even faintly resemble the way you give to needy people like us. Send us your spirit. And make it so. Give us generous hearts. Set our eyes on Christ. Loosen our fists and our purses. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.